Welcome back to the program. Our founding fathers created a system of government that respected opposing points of view and was designed to work even across those differences. Throughout most of American history, it's worked. One time it did not was in 1861 when Abraham Lincoln uttered these words. What is our present condition, he said? We have just carried an election on principle fairly stated to the people. Now we are told in advance the government shall be broken up unless we surrender to those we have beaten before we take office. In this they are either attempting to play upon us or they are in dead earnest. Either way, if we surrender, it is the end of us and of our government. They will repeat the experiment ad infinitum. In fact, they did, and it led to the Civil War. After the war, for 150 years, the system worked once again. Today we're in danger of what Lincoln called the end of us. Perhaps the ideal is to look into contemporary history, to try and find the last time that our system of government worked as intended. That was in the 1980s. It was in part the personalities of people like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, and it was also a different time and a different context to help us sort it all out and understand that time and how it perhaps led to where we are today. We're joined by my guest, Chris Matthews. Chris Matthews is, of course, the anchor of MSNBC's Hardball, as well as the Chris Matthews Show. He is the author of numerous books about our contemporary political scene, and it is my pleasure to welcome Chris Matthews back to this program to talk about his latest, Tip in the Gipper, When Politics Worked. Chris Matthews, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. You you couldn't have said it better about the challenge we face. And boy, is it a challenge. I I don't think we're fighting over slavery or something so important and bad as that. We're fighting over an attitude towards the federal government, which is an old fight going back to Jackson days and the Whiskey Rebellion. We can handle this about the relative influence of the federal government in our lives and the debt and all the rest of it. It's doable. And I think if both sides recognize you have to negotiate to a point and then move on. But one of the things that's different, I mean, if we talk about the period you write about, after the 1980 election, Tip O'Neill and Robert Byrd didn't come before the American people and say on the day after the election, our goal for the next four years is to defeat this president. No, they didn't. They honored what had been a tradition, and they reaffirmed it, of a honeymoon. It sounds almost, it sounds romantic even now, that there would be a, a period of time, maybe six months, in which a new president, elected by the people, and in this case with a pretty good mandate, would be given, his, as Tip would say, my old boss, his day in court, or her day in court in the future. The, a time in which you would be, there'd be no games played, no filibusters, there'd be an up and down vote. And in that case, I think this really set the tenor for the six years that Tip and Reagan were opposed to each other. He said, okay, I disagree with you. I'm 180 from you. I don't want these programs cut that help poor people and help old people. But you will have a vote on all your domestic cuts, a vote on all your tax cuts, and on your defense hike by August 1st. In other words, within six or seven months of being president, he will know whether he has a program or not. And he was able to get a program, and Tip did it for a number of reasons. One, to honor the election. He respected the voter. And two, he wanted to be able to blame Reagan for conditions. And he couldn't do that if the president wasn't truly in charge of U.S. policy. At that point, he could, and it was fair game, he would say, okay, it's your economy, it's your budget, let's, let's go to war then. But he didn't try to, to log jam him or sabotage the way you've described what those fellows were doing the night of, and it was almost like the Civil War. You know, when you talk about it, you listen to Lincoln talking about people uh, conniving against him even as he came to office 
Boy, it sounds like it. It sounds like the Civil War. It's interesting, too, you talk about the battle over the role of government, and yet even Reagan, who talked about going back to his, you know, time in the Time for Choosing speech in 1964, talked about government being the problem and not the solution. There still was a respect for the role of government. That's fundamentally different today. Yeah, it's certainly a, resp- a respect, and it's absolutely true for the processes of our government. He believed in self-government, Reagan. He was a romantic about it. He believed in the Congress. He never saw the Congress as the enemy. From the beginning of his presidency, he he courted Tip. He courted the Democrats almost to the point of uh, you know of a football. He was or a basketball game, a full court press. He would even go. I, I talked about this. One of the nice stories in the book is about how he went to the gym dinner, a dinner given by the guys who run the gym over in the Rayburn building of the house. And he showed up that night because he knew that this was one thing they had to themselves. That there were no photographers there. Mostly guys would have a steak and maybe a, ma- a, a baked potato, a beer, and maybe uh, a apple pile, a very male kind of dinner, and there'd be nobody around except their friends. And they would all, guys like Jake Javits would come back, and Mac Mathias from the old days. I think John Lindsay was there. They came back because they wanted to feel that camaraderie again across party lines. Reagan showed up, and he wrote in his diary that night, stop by the gym dinner, Jimmy Carter never went. He was so proud of the fact that he was doing it right. The other thing is that there was, an, even if it was unspoken, and, and you talk about this, a kind of set of rules that everybody played by. And as long as you operated within the framework of those rules, it was possible to fight and come to some kind of conclusion. The way we look at it today, there are no rules. Reality is denied over and over again. Yeah, I think the idea of uh, of a real shutdown of government over more than just 48 hours or something, there were those in those days that, were, that happened, but they were on small issues and they were forgettable. Today we're talking about an all-out fight over a bill that became a law that was reviewed by the Supreme Court and found constitutional uh, affordable care. And now we're going to fight about that to the point of shutting down the government and then to the point of defaulting on our national debt. It's almost like the difference between... Well, let me put it this way. Everybody recognizes, I think, that Muhammad Ali was the greatest fighter in modern history, but he fought within the rules of the Marcus of Queensborough. You didn't punch below the belt. You, when, it, when the bell rang, you went back to your corner. All kinds of rules about not, uh, you know, whatever. There's, you can't use any foreign objects, obviously, and all that stuff. But today, politics is almost like extreme fighting, where you can gouge the guys out, eyes out, you can kick them below the belt. You can do anything. And, and also, it doesn't seem to end. What I, my problem with these people is they're not willing to come out and say, okay, we're going to have a debate and we're going to move on, but we're not going to just keep fighting and trying to destroy each else, destroy each other. And that is the mood of a, I'll be partisan. I think Ted Cruz is a new kettle of fish. I think there's a look in his eye that's a, a redolent of McCarthy, of mm-hmm. the guy Ackerman in the, in the great film uh, and, and novel Advice and Consent, the guy who just plays outside the rules. And I think he won't last long because of it. And there's a state of denial that exists with this. It, it's like, and, and I think you've made this analogy, you're out there playing tag on the on the field, and yeah. you tag somebody and say, you're it. And they, no, I'm not it. Didn't happen. That's so basic to the way we were, we don't even know we're being trained as kids, but we were really being trained by good parents and good playmates to play by the rules. Because without the rules, there is no game. And I don't want to diminish the importance of politics, but it has a game aspect to it, meaning winners, losers, votes, numbers, score. They do all rel- are relevant. And, and if you don't learn to instinctively say, okay, you got me. If you don't say that, or same with Cowboys Indians, we used to play them. And we used to play, if you played the Indian, you played the Cowboy, whatever. There was a sense of, you shot me, you got me. 
And, and, and if he didn't do that, then you couldn't have fun anymore as a kid, harmless fun. And I think today they just go on to their separate cages. I mean, and again, they seem to be talking about different things. I'll say, well, what about uh, the catastrophe of a government uh, default? And they'll say, oh, well, I, uh, I don't believe in international economists. I don't listen to them. Or I don't listen to domestic economists. And I asked the, the person from Congress, I said, well, who do you trust? How do you know what's true? And he says, I raised a family. I mean, they, they say things that don't stand up to any standard of truth. They just keep the side of the argument because it's, it's convenient. You talk about when you worked for Tip O'Neill, and, and, and there's a lot of stories that you tell in the book about things like this, but tricks you would do, demonstrations you would organize, things you would do to try and bring public attention to your cause or your point of view or Tip O'Neill's point of view. They're things that, if you look at them in the context of politics today, seem almost ancient, seem almost quaint in some ways. And it really well, they were speaks- what I call, uh, uh, Jeff, I'd call them good tricks, not dirty <laughs> tricks. I mean, no. I would like go, go to the steelworkers up in Pennsylvania or in Baltimore, a bunch of the guys, and I'd say, why don't you have a rally? Why don't you have a demonstration? The unemployment rate had reached 11%. You've got to do a wake-up Mr. President rally. And so to make it interesting, we said, why don't we do it at 4 o'clock in the morning, because Reagan has a reputation for sleeping late. So why don't we w- wake him up? And I managed to get them all to come down in buses. It was hard work for these guys. This is their work. They had to come down and do this. And then I did make sure that they all got coffee and donuts at 6 in the morning because I wanted them leaving happy. I didn't want them in a bad mood to start dumping on the Democrats, too. But a lot of other fun things that we did, you know, and I think uh, there'd be a rally about the bounce budget amendment. And I would organize people like Claude Pepper and Alan Cranston, some of the older members, to talk about Social Security and how it would be affected by such an amendment. And we'd have it on one side of the Capitol, and Reagan would have his on the other side. The evening news that they report on both sides. And I, I, whenever I did one of these, I always felt my greatest joy was when the speaker would say to me, as he did once, "Is this one of yours?" Because he would say it with wonder, like because he never talked to me about these things. I, he, I think he was very happy I could pull them off because they were all completely legitimate. And how do you see something like that in the context of today? They seem almost quaint by today's political standards. Yeah, they were, we didn't engage in sabotage. I mean, we didn't, uh, there was nothing personal. In fact, Tip, the, I never dared call him Tip. I called him Mr. Speaker, of course. But he had these great old school rules, which may not seem that important, but they set the context. One time we made a joke about uh, Nancy Reagan's silver, or, or Chinaware, the new Chinaware. There was a lot of heat about this right. new Chinaware she raised the money for. And I actually have become very good friends with Nancy. My mom died of uh, Alzheimer's, and of course she lost her husband to it, and that's a real bond. And I'm going to see her this Saturday. I think I'm going to see her at her place. But she said, um, Tip said when he saw our, a copy we had written for one of his speeches, he had to give it a black tie dinner. He said, never, ever make fun of a family member. It'll get a rise out of the audience, and you'll regret it the rest of your life. And, and one time he made a mistake. He was talking to the great Scotty Reston, James Reston of the New York Times, who was doing sort of his retirement piece. And we all thought it was off the record, what was on the record in the Times the next day. So he felt terrible about a joke, because all he said was, Reagan's not going to run for a second term because Nancy wants to go back and become the queen of Beverly Hills, which was his way of saying something. So he called up Mike Deaver, who worked at the White House. And he got to be friendly with him. We were all friendly with the other side back in those days. Duberstein was a friend of mine. Kirk O'Donnell was pals with the guys on the other side of foreign policy. Ari Weiss was friends with them on policy. We all were friends together. That's the irony of then. And he said, what should I do? And Mike Deaver said, write a handwritten letter to Mrs. Reagan apologizing. That's all you have to do. And he did it, and things were forgiven. This is old school. Reagan once called him a demagogue, and Tip, and, 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 and Tip got mad, angry. He said, you don't want to talk to the Speaker of the House that way. It's my position. 
And say Reagan called him up and said, I'm, basically, let's be friends. Let's not do this anymore like this. And they would always try to honor the boundaries, like in a marriage, really. You get angry, of course, everybody does. But you try to keep some kind of connection there that you know is very important. How much of the change, Chris, is attributable to the way politics is covered today? 24-hour news cycle, gotcha politics, trying to make headlines out of anything you can get somebody to say. How much does the context of coverage impact what's going on inside? Well, it's a chicken-egg problem. I think uh, I think that... Um, I'll try to be really honest here about my role, too, with Hardball. I, I think for years there was a slant in the major networks, which was, I wouldn't call left-wing, but sort of establishment liberal. Cronkite, who would admit to being that. Uh, maybe John Chancellor, not so much. Certainly Dan Rather, later. Where uh, Howard K. Smith was sort of a hawk, but I think otherwise a, a liberal. And after a while watching that for being, your growing up years, I think uh, Roger Ailes, who's quite brilliant, discovered that there's an opportunity for something else. Now, he called it fair and balanced, which was kind of a joke, because I think they know, even those people who watch it, that I'd like to think that they know it's balanced in the sense it balances off what had been the reputation of the other networks. And then over time, the other networks like NBC, I don't even know what Brian Williams' politics are, and I work with the guy all the time. Uh, George Stephanopoulos has a background as a Democrat. You could say you see it in his uh, work, but I don't see it. I didn't see it with Tim, Tim, Tim Russert. Mm-hmm. I didn't see his. I think he really made an effort to be down the middle, hard, hard and down the middle. So I'm not sure the media is as guilty as it was of being uh, slanting left, if you're a liberal. If it, but I think definitely Fox has gone all the way and has become a cheering section. And that's what it is. Now, our network, MSNBC, is a is a somewhat milder version of that, although I must say that during the day, all day, it's pretty balanced. And, and I, I take a center-left position pretty much with some exceptional issues. I'm tough on immigration, illegal immigration, although I really want a progressive immigration system that we enforce. I just don't want it not enforced again, like Simpson-Mazzoli wasn't enforced. But I do think um, I do think that uh, it's the trouble today is I always tell young audience, Go out and put together your own stew. Uh, read a quality newspaper, the Journal or the Post, uh, the New York Times, rather, and, and read a local paper, and then watch something like Morning Joe or something like that, or watch uh, Charlie Rose or something on NPR, listen to something on NPR, or, and put, your, put together your own stew. Uh, don't expect Uncle Walter to come around and say that's the way it is. You have to put it together. I think some people make a, a, a serious effort at avoiding putting it together. They'll watch MSNBC all day without break or they'll watch Fox all day without a break they don't want to hear the complexity they don't want to hear the conflict that's real I think that's the that's the consumer's problem because those other media are available and they just choose not to uh, to attend to them the other thing that happens though is this whole idea of political equivalence and in many ways Roger Ailes and others are responsible for what we might refer to as working the refs in such a way over so much time that, that often things are presented as if both sides have political equivalents when, in fact, they don't. Well, right now, I think you're on the nail here because what's going on the last couple of weeks, and we'll go on now perhaps through the fall or certainly through the end of October, it's very – when I watch the, this, what's called the objective news reporting, I find it awful that someone will just – allow someone like Ted Cruz of Texas to say he didn't instigate this government shutdown. Of course he did. He bragged about it all summer. He pushed it all summer. He began with the idea of holding uh, the, 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 the government and ultimately the debt to uh, Obamacare. He made a point of saying he wanted that done. He got it done. And then he pulls back and says, well, isn't this terrible, that sort of look of moral indignation in his eyes. 
and he furrows his brow and he shakes his head back and forth and isn't this terrible what's happened here? Well, he did it. And yet the media has to do a, a back and forth, a kind of a symmetric look at the news, even when they have to force that honest, force an honest symmetry when there isn't one there. And I think the problem, and I think the press objective is, uh, isn't the same as balanced. I think objective and factual is more important than balanced because you can balance out over time, but in particular instances, if you're trying to balance every single argument as if both sides are equally uh, logical or, or uh, true, I think you're forcing a dishonesty on the reality you're facing. When we look at the current situation, and, and you probably saw Joan, Joan Walsh as a guest on your show. You saw her piece a last lot, week yeah. talking about race being a big part of this issue. To what extent do you think that that's true? I'd say of the 30 or so Tea Party staff are grossly guilty of that. Uh, 15 or so are birthers. Uh, Louis Gohmert, uh, Farenthal, these people openly say they, they have a problem with Obama because of his background. I had Farenthal on Hardball uh, last week or the week before, and I asked him, can you repeat after me, this president was legitimately elected president, and he wouldn't do it. I asked him four times. He came up with different locutions, but he wouldn't say that because he wants to be able to say to the people on his right and among his constituents who are hard right and have a problem with Obama's ethnicity that he's with them. They don't want to foreclose those votes on the hard right. And look at Donald Trump. What's his game? A man of his education and background, he went to the Wharton School. He knows what he's talking about. Why would he come out and say Obama was born in some other country or create some sort of false mystery about the guy's background? And uh, the irony, of course, is they're all pushing Ted Cruz now, who was born in Canada. And I've heard the beginning of this said, I think he's natural born. He doesn't have to be naturalized. He may not be native born, but he's natural born because there's no requirement that he go through any procedure to be an American. So therefore, he's natural born American. His mother was from here. And the worst case scenario of the birth is, is to say Obama's mother was American, but he was born overseas, which puts him in the same category as Ted Cruz. As Ted Cruz. <laughs> except they probably, some of these real excuse the term, yahoos, probably believe that Canada is part of the United States or that Hawaii isn't, or you don't know what they're thinking. I'm not sure it's a thought process. What do you think that Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would make of the current mess? If they were here today with us and took a look at what was going on, what would they make of it, Chris? Well, the speaker was was a uh, he wasn't an activist Democrat. He was a regular Democrat, meaning like Hubert Humphrey or someone who cared about the poor, uh, especially the kid who couldn't afford to go to college, he really felt for that kid. Or the uh, the older person with health problems, he really did feel that he wasn't some, you know, professional liberal that worked the interest groups. He he saw them pretty clearly what they were doing, the organized pressure groups. But his interest was that of a constituent server to individual cases that he had well worked with for 50 years. I mean, he would. Uh, he didn't, for example, when the McGovern crowd took over in '72, he he said, "I was defeated for delegate." by the cast of hair. I mean, he had an ability to see uh, the far out. You know, he, he did understand that you can go too far with your politics. And uh, he, he once, he, he could be pretty funny about it. He referred to the Newt Gingrich crowd who came in and were quite a problem for him. I guess it was Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott and some others, Bob Walker from Pennsylvania. He just ch- chuckled at them and called them the, um, the Three Stooges. And he laughed about it and that was an interchangeable group of three he would always come up with the three stooges to cover whatever three were out there talking but when they reached the point of extremism and they came they came to holding those special orders on the floor where they were accusing the democrats including tips old roommate for 20 years eddie Bowen, of being communists and traitors uh he didn't abide that and that's when he really got heated up and uh 
you could say, lost it. He just couldn't believe that people were calling his friends uh, anything but patriots. And so I think he would react rather heatedly to this thing. And he would, uh, Ted Cruz would really get to him. He would say, why is this guy out there? Of course, Ted was a guy that back in the 40s as a state rep in Massachusetts was against any kind of loyalty oaths for the teachers. He was pretty liberal on things like that, and he was called a communist for being that. So I don't think he would have sympathized much with a Ted Cruz today. But for all his differences, the other thing you talk about, for all his differences with Reagan, to a certain extent, politics ended at the water's edge in, in the cliché. You talk about his relationship yeah. and his conversations with Gorbachev and, and how yeah. that paved the way for Reagan. You know, I, I, was, I was just fortunate. One of our producers, young producers, came across. NBC has this wonderful archives, and he dug up April 10th, 1985, the cold open of the Today Show, and Bryant Gumbel was still the uh, host, and he said, at this hour, a bipartisan delegation of Congress people is meeting with the new Soviet leader. They are carrying with them a letter from the president, President Reagan, asking for a meeting. The, the delegation is led by Speaker of the House Thomas P. Tip O'Neill. And you think about how he, he said it without remarkability or uh, exceptionalism or novelty or irony. It was just considered normal just those many years ago, those three decades ago, for an opposition leader to represent a president overseas and to do it without any kind of you know embarrassment uh, or contradiction. And you imagine today, uh, suppose we had to announce that Biden was over-representing Obama to uh, Putin. It doesn't make sense. We'd say that doesn't make any sense. That's a, that's a cookie story. That's nonsense. How could that be? It must be a misprint. And I think that that sense of... Uh, on the big superpower issues of the United States and the old Soviet Union during the Cold War, they were together. Where they disagreed was the regional stuff. Tip was uh, very much suspicious of all, the whole move by Reagan in, into uh, Nicaragua. He thought it was another Vietnam coming. And they really did fight all the time over that. And that ended up being the Iran-Contra problem because the people around Reagan, uh, North went all the way. They were extremists. Uh, certainly North was. And uh, went out and, get, and raised the money and got it, and got it from the so-called profits from the Iranian arms deal and brought it into, uh, they gave it to the Contras. And Poindexter, in his testimony, said uh, he was all for keeping his eyes closed to the whole deal because he was so angry at Tip O'Neill for holding up the money. So there were some extremists around Reagan. I don't think he was one, but they really went completely out of control back then on that issue of Nicaragua. And finally, how do we get beyond government by tantrum right now? You read my phrase. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is government by tantrum. Um, I think we're going to go through a period of zealotry for two or three years now. I think the uh, there's a move by the right to take over the Republican Party, not necessarily to elect the president, but to win the nomination process, as we saw back in the uh, mid-60s with Goldwater. And I think they're going to make a real effort to do it, and I think they're going to succeed with probably Rand Paul and not Ted Cruz, but somebody like that. Uh, they're going to deny it to somebody like Chris Christie or if Jeb Bush gets in it, Jeb Bush. They don't want the regular Republican Party to win this fight. They consider them rhinos. So I think the real evolutionary fight we're going to watch the next two or three years is who wins the heart of the Republican Party. I really would like to have a choice when it comes to voting. I really would. I'd like to be able to choose between the party that's center-left and the party that's center or center-right and uh, to be able to vote for a, uh, for a Christie or even a Jeb Bush. And uh, and I think that that choice, the American people want it too. They really want the choice between, say, the old New York Herald Tribune Republican Party of Rockefeller. And Kennedy always believed that Rockefeller would have beaten him that he had he won the nomination. People don't mind a, a center-right person in this country. They would like to see 
uh, someone who who represents that brand of Republican. Is there room for that kind of Republican anymore, though? That's the question. Well, I think we're going to see a real heroic effort by Christie. I mean, the poor guy's overweight. He's told everybody that. He knows he's got a weight problem. That is his distinguishing factor. But he's also a wonderfully uh, uh, impulsive, even uh, certainly spontaneous fellow. He's so unlike so many politicians. And uh, he seems like the kind of person who could walk around the streets of any suburb or city and connect with people. Whether he can connect with the rural areas is a big problem for him, probably. But he's extremely popular in South Jersey, where I have relatives who live there, working-class people who really like him. They like the fact that he speaks English in a sort of a street-corner way. And he's a political moderate. And most importantly, he showed that when it comes to the needs of the people, he's not a politician. He's not a partisan. He went and walked those beaches with President Obama because he he had his hand out for the state of New Jersey that needed help. And uh, the funny thing is about even conservative Republicans, and he's not a conservative, but Republicans, is that when there is a natural disaster, they go for the federal government, just like any liberal. They believe, and we're on this together when the time comes. Chris Matthews, the book is Tip and the Gipper, When Politics Worked. Chris, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, you're a great host. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 